0: Chocolate. 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 Hey, chocolate lovers. It's now May, and as we're all acutely aware, more than one full year has passed since COVID shut down international travel. Like most of you, I have big plans for last year. One of those plans included a trip to Trinidad and Tobago in October during the nation's month of chocolate. Alas, the islands were destined to celebrate chocolate only domestically in 2020. As the country has recently entered its third lockdown, I sat down virtually with Jillian Goddard. Jillian is the founder of Sun Eaters Organics Chocolate in the Maracas Valley of Trinidad, as well as a food-forward activist with deep ties to the U.S. Over the decades, Jillian has practiced activism through entrepreneurship, a concept that's helped her guide her community towards growth and empowerment, wherever she finds herself. In this episode we dig into topics like diversification, bullying, and empowerment through creation. But to offer some context to the region itself, I'm starting with one particular question I asked Jillian later on in the interview. How have you found it to be different life for women who are working in agriculture, in the Caribbean and elsewhere?
1: I mean, for one, I think it's, even though the Caribbean is a small area, it's not a homogeneous place. Oftentimes, you include Guyana, Suriname, some of the places in South America non-Spanish, usually. But then you move up, let's say, the chain of Caribbean islands that sit in the Caribbean Sea. And that's also not homogeneous. So if you look at what's happening with cacao in the Dominican Republic, it's very, very different, even than what's happening with cacao in Haiti when they're sharing the same island. If you look at what's happening with cacao in Barbados, because Barbados was deforested really early, had very early colonial interactions, much earlier than much of the rest of the region. So the deforestation process there was thorough. Trinidad has oil wealth, and therefore much more disposable income, and therefore we as chocolate makers are able to put out our product on the local market. I mean, I know, 50 individual entities making chocolate. Everybody's not out on the market in a big way. Even if you look across the origin countries, you're not necessarily going to see that possibility. So we have to differentiate the Caribbean a bit. You have to remember that even pre-European colonization, the Caribbean was a diverse region with multiple groups who were living in different ways. There was definitely a lot of movement in the area. So that, in a certain way, determined the historic context of individual islands or individual countries. So the conversation around cacao that could be happening in this region, isn't really happening actually.
0: More than 50 chocolate makers in a country of 1.4 million is absolutely remarkable. That's the equivalent of having nearly 12,000 chocolate makers here in the U.S. With that abundance in mind, let's get to know Jillian Goddard a bit better. Note that the first three minutes of the interview are muffled, but it's quickly improved. So, I've heard some of the details about your journey to craft chocolate, but to give some context to your work, could you tell us a bit about yourself?
1: Okay, well, I mean, I've been alive for quite a while now, so my journey is long. But I was born and grew up in Trinidad, but my dad is from Tobago, which is another island. So, I spent a fair amount of time there. And then, when I was 17, I moved to the U.S. for college. I had already spent a good amount of time there because my mom's family migrated almost completely to the D.C. area. And my dad's family migrated a little more scattered, but a lot to new. So I spent my childhood and teenage years going up to the States for summer. I moved up to the U.S. to Atlanta when I was 17, so I went to college there, moved around a lot. I always moved around a lot. And then I spent a few years in D.C. trying to figure out what I was doing, went back to Atlanta, finished up some studies, some science studies, and moved to California for graduate school. So I did some research projects in from that started coming back here. and. Then, for the next 20 years, kind of lived with my feet between the U.S. and Trinidad. But a lot more in Trinidad, increasingly settled in Trinidad. But I did spend about two years in an RV driving around the U.S. And I had a organic shop in Trinidad. And I lived in the desert far west Texas. Yeah, so I've had a very diverse past. So, I mean, if you grew up in Trinidad... Especially when I grew up, we ate a lot of cocoa pulp. The, we sucked a lot of cocoa seeds, fresh from the with and we sucked the pulp.
0: So it's enjoyed more as a fruit? Well, it used to be. I mean, it's not um. as common, but it's coming back. And then we
1: also did a lot of drinking of cocoa, cocoa tea, which is basically... 100% cocoa beans in a bowl with spices in it, which we grate into milk and boil on the fire with sugar. It smells really, really good. So that's how I knew it. I mean, we would get chocolate once in a while. I mean, maybe kind of commodity brown chocolate. And I remember when I was a teenager, a friend of mine, Mothers came from Switzerland and brought me a Toblerone. I've never tasted chocolate like that. And it doesn't taste the same anymore. It was unbelievable. So I guess in terms of eating chocolate, that was my introduction to slightly higher quality chocolate. It's been an interesting journey with it coming in and out of my life. But when I, speak to my, when I spoke to my parents about it, I mean, that was a central part of their life because the nutrients from cocoa, especially in that drinking form mixed with some other natural foods can really keep you going when times are hard. So people would make the cocoa tea, which is full of nutrients, full of good fats, and would eat it with like cassava bread, which is a flat bread made from cassava or they would put our in it to thicken it up. So it was a hearty thing to start today if you had limited money.
0: I think a lot of people would see an upbringing between two countries as sort of privileged, but I think it also just gives you a lot of different perspectives. Um, you've been described as an activist by a lot of people, to me, when when looking for interesting guests who who bring that sort of different perspective how do you think that your upbringing has contributed to your sense of justice or or injustice in trinidad and elsewhere
1: yeah well my dad worked for the airlines so that allowed us very early on to do a lot of moving around um we couldn't go anywhere and stay in a hotel or anything so so i mean Coming up to the US in those days, I guess I did feel really, really special because even though we were fine standby and got bumped many times, had to come off the plane in strange cities or strange countries. Um it and it was always really tense to travel because we never knew until the plane took off whether they would take us off. So it was Kind of the story of my life, which is a type of relative privilege. Um, Skin color, hair texture mainly, um, especially through my mother's side. But both my parents were very, very financially poor. So when I was growing up, Trinidad went into oil boom, So that made cash much more available here. But the thing is that the culture in which I grew up is a culture that is was embedded in um, one of the things was historic poverty. And there's a level of everyday life that was part of that as you would call it class that people now would call activism because you got involved in community. It was just the way things were. It was part of the culture. If somebody else was having a hard time, you helped them out. You thought about your neighbors. So I grew up embedded in that. I mean, it was really bizarre to me. Being so surprised by how cold and non engaged middle class people were. And when I would come up to the States, most of my family worked of people with were born in job. So my grandmother worked as a maid, and then she studied to be a nurse's aide. And my other family, depending on their skin color in the U.S., because that would have a big influence on the type of jobs you could get in. But a lot of them ended up being about caregiving. So I would be inside of spaces that were wealthy, because a lot of the time, the people they were doing caregiving for The families would never be there. So my relatives would be the only person or the only people with these wealthy people they were taking care of. So we would be in and out of the buildings. And usually they would get each other jobs. So like one would be the doorman. You know, they'd be in the running of the building. So I got to be around a lot of wealth in that type of way it's a non-reciprocal relationship because in those contexts the wealthy people never come to your life but you are somewhat inside of their lives so i think you know i don't think i could have done otherwise because that's how my family lived you paid attention to other people how they were doing and you tried to figure out ways to make their situation better whenever you had a chance. So it it's, was an interesting entry into what people call activism now. Being involved on a political level was very rare in my family. I guess nobody felt important in that way. You did your activism on a very community level, and I still am most comfortable functioning at that level. So I have to really push myself to step outside of the spaces that I grew up thinking about and caring about. So the communities in which I am often engaged are my source communities. It's just that the way the economy went here, there was a lot of pressure for that of mobility from people like me. And so at some point, I had to make a decision that I was going to take what I thought was making sense in human qualities, but I was not going to absorb the philosophy of class mobility.
0: Yeah, observe instead of absorbing.
1: Observe and utilize what makes sense because all groups when they are put in isolated spaces develop some strengths and some things that have major challenges and so even speaking up is not speaking the way that i interview i try to write i try to record my thoughts that's not one of the strengths of type of historic poverty that my family came out of so i have to push myself to do that kind of stuff And I had to push myself a lot in the beginning. And I still sometimes, often, struggle with it. Because, you know, sometimes you kind of had to stay under the radar to survive. There were major consequences if you were poor and decided to speak up. So that's why for me, if you have any privilege that you can get away with doing things that make people's lives better, you need to do it because everybody doesn't have the ability to do it without major life consequences.
0: You've said in the past that you feel entrepreneurship is one way to express activism. Could you expand upon that idea?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, movement of resources, right? So if you break it down to its basics, it's movement of resources, adding skills to resources, In order to get more value from them. And I think that you can choose any field at this point because the system is so messed up and so developed. So you can kind of choose any field and you can choose to do work within that field on that topic that will make a difference. But when it comes to entrepreneurship, because financial resources are such a major part of the way that people are oppressed. And where the system is designed to exclude someone, then entrepreneurship becomes a very fundamental way to actually capture resources, move them around, and be able to have some options, have choices, have the ability to not be so powerless. But I don't think of entrepreneurship in the same way that People think about it sometimes. I mean, there's this idea of entrepreneurship, like this sole, single person with their hand up in the air, pointing forward. Like, to me, that's nonsense. Generally, people succeed because the system facilitates it. And when we have individual interaction with that system, there still is a whole system. It's still not one self-made person. And that's one of the things that when I talk about, like, class mobility, this idea that, you know, you move into the middle class and suddenly you're this entrepreneur. No, everything you do depends on the system, including your friends, your family, the people who taught you, the way to speak about something, the confidence you have. We are all embedded in the system. And acting as though we are individual actors is a real inaccuracy. So when I think of entrepreneurship, it's not exactly the way that people understand it sometimes. There's a lot of interaction and back and forth that's going on all the time. And so the word entrepreneur is misleading.
0: I have heard sometime in the last week someone give sort of a similar argument, but I think from a more purely American perspective about how a lot of people think in the US that you can be self-made and that you can completely build your fortune from scratch but that people who believe that aren't considering the fact that when you're when you're building a business you're hiring workers who are you're you're not the only person who's who's doing everything you're depending upon firefighters to be there if your building catches on fire like you're using roads that were built with money that the government provided from taxes from everyone everyone has played a role in building your business if you're an entrepreneur
1: i completely agree with what you're saying and the thing is it's about you know what is visible and what is invisible and i tend to really love to look at the things that one type of you would say it's invisible so i'm looking at this um series right now that's filmed in australia And it's a type of homestead farm development series. And except for the first episode, there are no indigenous people. It's all European heritage people. And I mean, I'm looking at this series and I really love the show in terms of the content. But I am constantly flabbergasted. But I'm always flabbergasted by how European heritage people just are there on top wherever you go and in Australia in this show it's particularly glaring to me because I see all of this luxury in what they're doing and the way that that happens so by the time somebody arrives on a farm in 2000 and whatever there is a history of the seizure of that land the transfer of the land you know exclusion of certain groups and inclusion of others utilization of resources in a particular way So there's a lot that goes before you become an entrepreneur.
0: How would you say that your activism is intersected with your work with cacao?
1: I think that cacao had good timing for me to decide to use it in that particular way. That's been about six or seven years. I mean, prior to that, I was doing a lot of stuff around planting without chemicals, organic farming, um, integrated systems, what people would call permaculture. So I have been involved in thinking about plants, food, utilizing plants for the needs of our lives for a long time. Cacao just happened to come along at a particular time. The way that I tend to work is that I pay a lot of attention to the direction in which I am being moved by the system. And when I say the system, I mean, I can't even describe all of it because it's the ability to, to foresee what's coming. And when you're farming or you're planting, you, have, you get really good at that. If you are using things outside of chemicals because you have to anticipate things before they happen. You have to prepare your soil in a particular way to plant a particular crop. You have to look at the weather and think, okay, well, this year, this is happening in this particular way. So you get really good at forecasting. And I tell people sometimes that I think if I were living in kind of a mainstream life, I would be hired as a trend forecaster because... I often will feel my way into what needs to happen next, or where is the attention of the society going next. In this piece, I could feel that that was the place that would be a good place to start doing the shift toward teaching farmers how to process, which has been a bit of an obsession with me for quite a while, because in the modern world, with the fact that raw materials get the least amount of money in most supply chains which is absolutely unreal to me like how could the raw material be the place where you're trying to save money and right. where, you know because everybody else is dependent on the raw material right mm-hmm. so for me it wasn't really starting with cacao i had already looked at how farmers lived i was farming i had an organic shop i had started a couple of organic farming groups I had traveled enough to rural areas to see that that was where everything was coming from and that the rural communities were impoverished because of that model of farmer poverty, minor poverty, fisherman poverty, whoever's getting the raw materials will be scheduled to be the poorest. And so when I stumbled in a way onto cacao, it was clearly the space that I had to do that action next. I had previously had an organic shop and cafe. So in the cafe, I had already started supporting farmers to process in the shop. I had supported farmers to make things, make products. So don't just sell cabbage, make sauerkraut. Don't just sell plantain, make flour because every time you process it kind of allowed your lifestyle to actually be able to afford things that other professions or groups consider basic dental care options for your children and so on so cacao in a way was a little bit easier because it's not perishable the way a lot of the other things that i had worked with were when you have a, a vegetable and fruits shop you really get to feel what it is to have a perishable product. And cacao just isn't like that. And I think that that's one of the reasons that it did become a global product, is that it isn't perishable. But one of the things that's different about cacao from other products is that it requires processing on spot and that processing has a time limit. So when you remove cocoa pods from a tree, If you don't ferment and dry, they will spoil that the quality of the processed product is almost completely dependent on what we in the growing regions do. And that's not the case with every raw material with coffee, even the amount of processing of coffee that has to happen at the place of growing is minimal. So. There's something about the particular nature of cacao and chocolate that makes it an ideal product to actually do the type of change work that we are doing
0: right now. Could you tell me a bit more about that evolution of Solar, your organic shop in Trinidad? I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right either.
1: Well, the thing is, the name wasn't Solar in the beginning, so... okay. What the name was, was the name of the company that I currently have, which is Sun Eaters Organic.
0: What's the origin of that name, by the way?
1: So I was a raw foodist for years. And basically, you know, when you're a raw foodist, it takes a certain personality to become a raw foodist. So it's like in Ayurvedic terms, a lot of vata, energy, space and air. So almost like having an artist's perspective towards things so when i was a raw foodist it was i would distill things down to the essence and what i saw which everyone kind of knows is that we are trying to eat the sun because the only source of incoming energy that keeps our planet from like flipping over into entropy is really the sun's energy and so You know, ideally, we would stand there with our mouths open and just let a ray of light come into our mouths and we would just eat the sun. (laughs) But we can't do that. So we have to eat things that can eat the sun or things that eat things that can eat the sun. So we, I mean, plants are able to eat the sun. And so that's actually how the name came about, that we are actually sun eaters at our core. Um... And so I had accidentally. I ended up starting a shop because I was a real foodist. I needed particular things. I asked other people if they wanted those things too, and I just got it. And next thing I know I had enough that I had extra, and so I started selling. And very very quickly, I had a shop. And then I opened the cafe and then I had like children stuff going on there. At one point, we even built like a skateboard ramp inside because for me, behavioral change is really very critical. And so looking at where the change has to happen to have the biggest amplified effect at the time, a lot of my work was to do with children, adultism, parenting, and Things to do with changing the way we raise children, and I'm actually trying to get back to that forward work now. So that's how Sanitas came about, and then there I had this year where everything just changed for me. So I got divorced, I transferred the shop and Cafe, I sold a piece of land I had, and I went and I got an RV in the U.S. and the two children and I just went moving around for a couple of years and. So Sun Eater's name was dormant for about 10 years, no, eight years. And then my partner at the time and I got together with an ex-partner to help him do some work around dried bananas. And so that company was called Sola. And so we did work under that name, first dried bananas, and then Coco Nibs, And then chocolate. And then my partner and I took back the Sanita's name, and the original person kept the Solar name, and we split the products. I mean, I guess if you want to define entrepreneurship in a personal way, I was always a reluctant entrepreneur because I never really understood the idea of enriching myself. It just made no sense to me. I understood. Having the things you need to do what you want to do in your life but gratuitous money just never made sense to me. I guess sometimes when you're on the receiving end of the behavior of people who have pursued that type of life, when for generations, you know, your family has lived in poverty because other people have made certain selfish, careless decisions. For me, I was really, really lucky to grow up in a family where my parents, my grandparents, well, my grandmothers, because I never knew any grandfathers, my aunts, my great aunts, my, you know, pretty much I would say in general, I'm from a family that really saw supporting the system to thrive in whatever way they could as the core of what we were here for. So the idea of what people might call service, which is a kind of weird word because to me it's not really service. It's just this is what a human is.
0: Being a decent person.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's being a person. Because I think that if you even just look basically at how humans develop, in order to survive to adulthood, there has to be a lot of giving of things and time and attention in directions that you're not going to get it back. And so I think that actually it's built into our DNA and our way of being, that that's actually how we would be naturally. But I do think that there's a system that now we have inherited that damages that part of who we are. There's a bully culture that has been allowed to thrive and that's part of what when i approach cacao it's from that perspective too i mean bullies are not served by giving them permission to bully i've done enough work on child development i did counseling and behavioral change work for years and still do it and when someone is hurt as a child and they grow up to become a bully it doesn't serve them so it's not serving the bully and it's not serving those who are bullied so when people call when when we use the word privilege which i still use the word right because you can't really say you know bully to people they 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 can't handle that like i knew that because of my skin color hair texture i was taught to bully people bully darker people bully people i was taught that as a child not in a direct way but i was taught that power when it's available, should be utilized to my individual selfish benefit and the benefits of my small little nuclear family or those who I have chosen to be close to. And we are actually hurt in a way that that is something that we are taught. And so I, I, I enjoy sometimes being able to do it through cacao, but sometimes I like to do it much more directly. So I'm looking to maybe start teaching some classes on, you know, being an oppressor, what does that look like? Because I understand what that looks like. I have experienced being oppressive. I behave oppressively towards my children and other young people. I behave oppressively in many ways to other forms of life. I mean, I have many ways in which I have learned to bully. So it has been helpful in me trying to sort it out and teach other people how not to bully how to clean that up, how to heal that space that makes you bully, even when it's invisible. And for me, like, I think of myself often, you know, from the position of what is a scientist? Someone who observes phenomena, usually material phenomena, and they draw conclusions, and then they make actions that change that material situation. So one of the things to be a good scientist, you have to see and be able to measure and you have to be really accurate in your observation. So when you are taught to bully, if you are given privilege, it means that you actually have to shut off the the accuracy of your observations. So say, for example, I decided that the best way to manipulate cacao was to utilize this particular machine. But I'm only seeing the machine. I'm not seeing the mind that's required to get that metal to me with that machine. I'm not seeing the plastic piece that created the mold that then does a joint that has to be thrown away. So I think that, you know, you can be a scientist and come up with all kinds of stuff. But if you're not seeing the bigger system, you're not really a good scientist. And there's a lot of bad science inside of the cacao world. So people make decisions based on that tiny little system they have in front of them. And we have been taught to reward it. So we pay more for particular things than we do for others. So someone will say, oh, this chocolate is so good. And the technical quality of the chocolate may actually be good. But that's not the only thing that you should utilize to judge a chocolate. It is possible to make chocolate that tastes good, that has a much smaller systemic bullying footprint than other chocolates. But it has to be in the judging requirements. But the culture that we have set up, and I mean the bigger global culture, has been set up not to notice that. So during that whole colonial period, when you know Europe was engaged with such indescribable cruelty on a global scale with the power to do it, there was that system being set in place even more tightly.
0: So you mentioned COVID. I mean, how has COVID-19 affected you personally and, and professionally? I feel like you can't really have an interview these days without addressing that.
1: Well, I mean, it's a feedback loop, right? From how things were moving, and so in our context here, so I have an individual label company, right, called Sanitas, but most of my time and most of my work, I do within the context of a network called the Alliance of Rural Communities. And so over the past six years, that's where most of my thinking and team engagement and so on has been taking place. And we kind of realized early on that focusing on PayPal as an individual product was not a good strategy because that may benefit an individual or an individual business, but it couldn't really benefit a community. And because our approach to business is community-based, we decided to have multiple streams of income within the network. And so cacao was one, making things, products. Another one was chocolate and cacao experiences. So we had a lot of what people call tourism. The third one was that we had veg box, produce box, CSA, some people call it. So we had a virtual shop that sold the things that the other things that were grown in the community. Because in most of our communities, cacao is integral. And so it really does change the income in the community if those other crops are able to have active markets. And the fourth line of income we had was making processed products and catering and creating recipes from the combination of all the agricultural inputs. So for example, you know, creating a brownie recipe that instead of wheat, which we don't grow here, it was made up of chocolate we were making cassava rice flour we were making and eggs or whatever oil so our approach was never monoculture. so when covid happened and the tourism completely fell out which was about a third of the total revenue of the network and even the chocolate sales committed we were rapidly able to pivot and raise the third stream of income that I was talking about. And it actually reached a point where it had replaced the others. Now, it was a challenging thing because with chocolate, you can kind of create a very regimented system fairly easily with directions and these other machines, whereas when you're working with multiple other crops, coordinating that is a lot more complicated. So the first few months were really, really draining. But now we're kind of in the groove, and it's, it's kind of funny, because then the chocolate sales started going up, because Trinidad had a very tight control over COVID in the beginning. And so the chocolate sales went back up, the produce sales went back down, the tourism started gradually rising and now we're back in a lockdown. Vroom, the tourism has completely gone again. That was internal tourism because our borders have been closed for over a year now. So for us, our business model is a complex forest system. So we look at the forest and we get our answers there. So the business answers actually come from looking at this complex ecosystem, seeing how it works and trying to figure it out. So for example, I'm going to give a concrete example here. There's a species called a pioneer species. So after damage has happened in the forest system, there's a bunch of plants that come in and they're not necessarily long-lived, but they can handle the challenging space of this damaged ecosystem and look it to prepare it for longer-lived species. So the trees in our ecosystem here, they might live like maybe 15, 20 years, There'll be other species that are on the ground that are moving the nutrients in a certain way that even last less time. And then, meanwhile, the more long lived species start to come in because the system starts being ready to handle those long lived species. And when we saw that, it just really lifted a load off of us because it was clear that, you know, this is a way. That things can evolve and that they often evolve naturally if the system even in a healthy system so um, so that's what I mean like you know I could read a lot of business books and sometimes there is stuff that is helpful but the forest has so many answers to a business strategy
0: So this is my last question. What are you working towards seeing more of and or less of in the coming years?
1: Well, one thing that we are working on now, and it didn't start now, we've been working on it for several years, but we're speeding it up a bit, is that it's clear that the global north doesn't have a clue and needs some help. And it's also clear that the global south has information and approaches and strategies that are needed in the Global North right now. And that the lack of them in the Global North, in the chocolate eating regions, maybe is another way that I could put it, the lack of that is hampering our lives in the Global South. And so one of the things that I had spent some time Sussing out was using the same model we are using, but in the US, to support the growth of some community companies that we could collaborate with and utilize our couverture or our other materials, especially within communities that themselves were marginalized within that situation. So that's one thing that looks really exciting that I'm really hoping we can speed up a bit we can accelerate right now also there are other interactions between the chocolate eating regions and the chocolate making cacao growing countries and enterprises that i think the time is right now i also like to analyze data so on a couple of the other interviews i've done recently i've spoken a bit about doing side by side comparisons of the model that we are utilizing and some innovations within it that we want to do with chocolate makers in chocolate eating regions to look at where the resources flow, where does the money go because it's not only to it's not only the chocolate makers in the u s using beans or in Europe using beans from origin countries that's affecting things. It's the system, right? So when those things are sent to the US or to Europe, how much is spent, what's the percentage of money that goes into shipping? Because most of those shipping country, companies are from the global north. What's the percentage that goes into packaging? Where does the money flow with that? So I, I seriously love, to look at spreadsheets and good data collection and see how that works. So those are some of the things that, you know we are heavily data-driven organization. We collect a lot of data and we want to look at how things work based on that data in order to create a more ethical situation not just within chocolate and cacao but within raw material processing because other people could potentially look at what we have done and our model and utilize that in other sectors even if they come out of cacao they can do similar things with their other raw materials that are in abundance in rural communities
0: yeah build up skills that can be applied to a variety of different mediums
1: yes skills and a model because there is a model that is also required and that's a big part of what we are in the process of developing
0: and i think slowly as models like that become more possible more common even it builds up an infrastructure that others can, can continue to build upon
1: Definitely, because we were able to go to St. Lucia. We raised some funds for a St. Lucian group, a women's collective, to do chocolate making. And we were able to, you know, basically do what a franchise might do, where they have standardized equipment, a standardized process. And we were able to go on in four days, teach, you know, chocolate making 101 very quickly the basics and help them with their labels and stuff. So in four days they were able to have a bar that was possible to sell and that was labeled.
0: That's wonderful. Yeah. I know Saint Lucia in particular, I think people tend to think of I think it's Hotel Chocolat, that exactly has the brand. It's just the one and it just dominates.
1: Yes. Well that's a whole other conversation. So, there are two community-owned chocolate enterprises there now, um, going slightly different directions from each other because the skill sets are different, and one is an all-women's group and has other products. I mean, they are, they are really being slammed by COVID because their economy is heavily, heavily dependent on the tourist community. So, we are starting to do more collective network meetings from next week, and hopefully, that will also help us to give the support to each other much more efficiently. I
0: hope so. You've been a very fascinating interview. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to share or any final thoughts?
1: I think that um, we're in a really amazing time. I am optimistic that in terms of the possibility of getting the change to happen, I think that the structures and the tension are right now. And we'll see how the feedback loops work with
0: that. Thank you so much for listening to this interview episode from Chocolate on the Road. If you liked it, please rate, subscribe, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. In fact, share it in any way you see fit. Your support makes all the effort put into each episode worth it. An especially huge thank you to Jillian for being in this episode. To learn more about Sun Eater's organics and Jillian's work, check out the show notes for this episode at the link in the description, or on my website at damecacao.com. That's D-A-M-E-C-A-C-A-O dot C-O-M. Have a wonderful day, and I hope you'll join me next time we go on the road.